This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Today I'm chatting with Jim Prattley. Jim is a professor of agriculture at Charles Sturt University. He's also an advocate for attracting youth into the ag industry and connecting them with career opportunities. In this episode, you'll hear how Jim's plan to spend two to three years as a lecturer turned into a fascinating career spanning 50 plus years, how he led the fight for universities to continue teaching agriculture, and why we need to continue to build the ag workforce. Let's jump in. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jim. It's great to finally have you on. Thanks, Annie. You've had a very long and interesting career, but where did your connection to agriculture first start? Well, I guess they started in the womb. (laughs) (laughs) I was born to a family on farm about 20 k's out of Bathurst, and my father was into the production of first cross lambs, and so the main activity was obviously an annual shearing and uh, joining and production of these lambs for sale. So I grew up in that context. And then after school, I understand you left the farm and went off and did some study. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I did. Well, the intention, as far as I knew, was that I would be coming back onto the farm after going away for some agricultural education. And so during high school, my father enrolled me in advance at Hawkesbury Agricultural College. But when I got to final year of school, the careers advisor suggested that I really ought to go to university. I didn't quite know what a university did or how it worked because it was all pre-television days and certainly no mobile phones or any of that sort of stuff. So the scope for looking wider at what was happening was pretty limited. So I went home and told my father that I'd really like to go to university. He said, oh, that's fine. Which university? And that caused a momentary lapse because they didn't know there were more than one. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, what course? And I didn't know what course I would end up in and so I went back to the careers advisor and we sorted out a course which was called wool technology in those days and I thought I'd get a glorified uh, wool classing certificate so I was super naive in those days and had no idea where I was going what I was doing but I ended up at university, the greatest experience of my life, being a protected country boy and exposed to the city and living with people that I didn't know for the first time and all that sort of stuff. It was a really great experience. And so I completed that degree quite successfully. And in final year, I was preparing myself to go back to the farm, only to go back in the May holidays to they'd sold the farm. And so I really should develop plan B. Plan B hadn't reached my agenda at that point. And so I went back to university and then what could I do? And I thought academia seemed quite an interesting development and a place where I could actually make a difference if I did it properly. So I managed to get a 
PhD scholarship, didn't quite know what a PhD was, <laughs> <laughs> but I got a scholarship anyway and did a PhD there. That had its ups and downs too. Seems to me farms and me don't quite gel because first year I had set up this experiment out at Cooler and got out there to discover that the rams had been in before I'd set the experiment <laughs> up and all the ewes were pregnant and weren't supposed to be and, and so it wiped out the first year's data. So I went back there the second year and no, the rams hadn't got in. So I set up a bigger and better experiment and then went back a month later to check it all out and discovered <laughs> they'd sold the sheep and the farm. Fortunately, I'd uh, set up some little uh, plots of fertiliser interactions, you know, for pastures and all that sort of stuff. So I went from an animal production focus to an agronomy focus, and I've been an agronomist ever since, even though my training's in animal production. I sort of steered clear of farms for a little while, uh, while I tried to uh, complete a PhD in agronomy. I then understand that after you finish your PhD, you went off to what was then Wagga Ag College, which is now Charles Sturt University, and you were planning on only staying for two to three years. What happened? <laughs> Post-PhD, I did a one-year postdoc on the University of New South Wales Field Station at Wellington on loosen utilisation, and then I got an appointment to Wagga Ag College. Interestingly, I did the interviews and didn't hear for a month or six weeks, how I'd gone. I decided that I hadn't been successful until I got a phone call asking me why I hadn't responded to the offer. And I, I had to <laughs> tell them that I hadn't received the offer and I received it that day and I accepted it within a couple of days. And The rest is history and uh, my wife and I turtled down to Wagga. I'm not quite sure what we were going to experience. I thought, Let's give it a, a bit of a burl for a couple of years, three years, and then see what happens. And we fell in love with Wagga. I uh, felt really comfortable with the agriculture because if you wanted to do agriculture in its broader sense, the centre of the universe is Wagga. So I really enjoyed that teaching part of it. And we started raising a family. And anyone who's seen anything about sporting heroes and that would know that Murrumbidgee water down here is really special and produces great athletes and other people and so we've spent the rest of my career in Wagga Wagga and uh, my wife she was a teacher in mathematics and so she spent the rest of her career here she's retired now she's had got more sense than I have (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it's really hard to give it up because it's such a great place to be a great place to work and I've seen the evolution from an ag college, all-male ag college, to a uh, multidisciplinary university of which we can be pretty proud. And that's a question I wanted to ask you, Jim. You've been involved with universities and ag colleges in different ways, but for so long, when you first started as a student to now, what are some of those really key changes that you've seen across the broader university space? When I went to the uh, University of New South Wales, it was still in its formative stages, and so there were lots of bare space on that campus. There isn't any spare space there now. It was uh, my first experience of international students and uh, living with some of them. And so I was sort of evolving at the same time as the system was. In those days, you needed a scholarship or rich parents to be able to go to university. If you want to go to ag college, 
you need to be male because women weren't invited until the 1970s. That's showing my age a bit. <laughs> but, uh, women had a really difficult time in being recognised or having the opportunity to get education in agriculture. The agricultural high schools only took males. The ag colleges only took males. Of course, you couldn't just call yourself a farmer if you were a female until the 1990s. And it's just ridiculous now when we look back that we're actually rejecting, we being the sector, and we're rejecting 50% of the intellectual capacity. Fortunately, we've moved past that and we've now got more women in universities than men in agriculture and have since 2003. Wow. So I actually see that as a great achievement by the sector that I was around when Whitlam came to power and that was a transformational period because he came in and declared higher education free. And so that enabled you know, people who couldn't afford to go to university before then to be able to go there and get an education and actually get professional jobs that perhaps they were never in their vision prior to that time because they didn't have the funds to be able to get there. So that was actually a really important time for agriculture, but education more broadly. At the same time, there was the whole affirmative action for women in the 1970s, and I didn't really understand the need for it or why we were doing it at the time. But I look back and think how wonderful that was in terms of getting rid of a lot of those barriers that students or potential students were facing at the time, both gender and socioeconomic status. And Australia's been much better for it. I think one of the problems, though, was that the leadership in agriculture at the time didn't cope with these changes too well. And at about the same time, we saw the establishment of the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Green Movement, and the Green Party, and agriculture became the whipping horse for environmental degradation. A lot of that was deserved, but we didn't actually have the leadership there to grasp that this was actually an opportunity. And so we spent a lot of time in denial. We spent a lot of time in catch-up, but we didn't spend a lot of time in getting to the front and leading. And that took another two or three decades and I think we're really fortunate now that we've got our first female president of the National Farmers Federation, and she is a very switched on lady. She's very articulate. She has led from the front from the time she got into that position. And so very grateful that a lot of these changes have now got to the point where gender isn't an issue. I'm a bit concerned about Indigenous issues in agriculture though. The history there is really awful and I did a study about three or four years ago to look at what we were doing in the universities for Indigenous people in agriculture and discovered that over 15 years we were putting out fewer than five graduates a year nationally and I just find that appalling. That's one of the areas that we really need to get our act together on because they've got great capability to deliver good things to agriculture. We're short of really good people, way short of filling the job market. And we need to bring everybody into the mix and create the opportunities for them as well as supporting our sector. Absolutely. And as a young female in both finance and also 
a supporting sector to agriculture. I am so grateful that things have changed over that time, but the thought of free higher education just blows me away. That's not something that has ever been in my lifetime, but I completely agree with you on the Indigenous side of things. They have so much knowledge to offer that is a different way of thinking. As an industry as a whole, what can we do to encourage or to make it easier or make it more attractive for those from our Indigenous communities to come on board and join the industry? Having spent a century or more disconnecting with them, we actually have to uh, spend a lot more effort in connecting or reconnecting. I've come to this gender in more recent times. I hadn't realised how badly they'd been treated till I started to do a bit of uh, historical searching. I've met quite a few and engaged with them and I'm finding them really attractive in terms of that engagement. I really enjoy their stories and their views and that sort of thing. And when I uh, got that outcome from my study, I set about establishing here at Charles Sturt University our First Nations Agricultural Initiative, where we were looking to build up a scholarship fund for undergraduates and a scholarship fund for postgraduate students, because I wanted to create the opportunity to have the spectrum there so that they could actually see that there was a career path for them if they wanted to go into higher degrees. And so we've done that in my uh, journey in this space. I've discovered that Charles Sturt University is one of the leading universities in Indigenous education, and we're one of the leading universities in agricultural education, but we've never put the two pillars together. So that's part of my charter to get those parts together. We've got a really good setup for supporting Indigenous students in the university. We do want Indigenous students to come into agriculture. We do want to learn about their culture. We want them to learn about our culture, if you like, and let's look for the synergies there. It's not about amalgamation or any of that sort of stuff. It's about mutual understanding, mutual respect and opportunities to uh, create synergies that we can both benefit from. So we're going quite well. We need more undergraduate students and it takes a while to build pipelines and uh, knowledge that this is uh, where we want people to come. And But we're fortunate well, I've got my first postgraduate student, an Indigenous postgraduate student, and that's a real wow. wow because we're both learning a lot and he comes to me and I challenge and he challenges my views and he's a well-educated young guy and I'm really enjoying that experience because it's made me challenge a lot of things that I thought I knew, which I didn't, and I'm challenging him to provide the evidence for the claims that he's making. And so together we're actually moving forward quite nicely and it's a real change from doing agronomic research per se. Uh, when you're talking to plants, I'm actually talking to a real Indigenous person. So that's really good. Perhaps he's a uh, future guest for Beyond the Farm Gate once he finishes his studies. Yeah, well, it is. And in fact, I've managed to get another couple of scholarships from AgriFutures Australia, and one of them is for a female Indigenous person. I have one, but she'll be uh, looking at the supply chain and the gaps in terms of Indigenous enterprise development. So 
We'll be working with Food Futures Organisation, and that's looking pretty interesting as well. So we have another scholarship where we're encouraging somebody in the cool burning agenda to uh, come on stream. Whether we'll get one remains to be seen, but they're only been out in the market for months, so it's a bit early to tell you. This isn't the first time, though, that you have played a role in securing the future of agriculture through bringing students in. And also not the first time that you've seen an opportunity to help improve the talent or the way we're bringing talent into the agricultural industry. Can you take me back to when you were working on the statistics around graduates versus jobs? Yes, well, I think it was in 2007, there was a seminar at Adelaide. And the title of that was something like, where are the agriculture graduates? And all the universities that had agriculture at the time sort of went there to hopefully find some answers because we're all struggling in terms of attracting students into agriculture programs. And we had, uh, prior to that time, lost campuses to agricultural education and not so much us, but a lot of other universities were deciding whether to maintain agriculture or not. And so we went there and uh, industry gave us a bit of a belting. It was all the university's fault, apparently. We're saying, well, hang on a bit. We don't actually have to teach agriculture. We can teach IT or business or wherever the demand is. You're the ones that need the graduates. What are you doing? And so we had a bit of a barney about that. At the same time, a couple of us sort of got all the deans together for dinner and we had a bit of a chat about what we could do. And, and I'd been Dean of the Faculty of Science and Agriculture here for 16 years, and I'd, I'd just finished up that stint. And I'd been on the Australian Council of Deans of Science for all that time, and I put the proposal to them that we can't do anything as individual universities, but if we pooled our resources and formed the Australian Council of Deans of Agriculture, then we would have a national body to be able to go to Canberra and, and say, look, we represent the university sector and this is what's happening. And so some were reluctant to give up their power, I guess, want a better word. But we got everyone on board and uh, we met in Canberra. A couple of months later, I'd pinched the constitution from the Council of Deans of Science and changed science to agriculture and a few other nuances. And and so we accepted that at the meeting and had a meeting lined up with the Minister for Agriculture at the time, Peter McGoran. We were going to tell him the sad story that you know, industry were crying out for graduates, but we had no students, basically. And we got there and he'd been to the Department of Education, Employment and Training, whatever it was, DEET anyway, and they told him that there were no jobs and plenty of graduates. So immediately we had the government policy being 180 degrees from reality. So we put tails between our legs and went back to the meeting. What do we do now? Clearly the official data were not telling the right story in terms of student numbers. So we decided to collect our own. And if you've ever tried to do something like that in the university sector where a university has to give up its bad news, then you're sort of pulling teeth from chickens really hard work, but we got there and were able to put the data together that showed that over a period of time, there'd been a continual decline in the student market for agriculture. So we published that 
put out a media release and the media picked up on it. And all of a sudden, it was a significant news story. I got this phone call from the Department of Agriculture, DAF, as it was uh, back then, and they were having a bit of a workshop on workforce, and they asked me to come across and tell them the numbers. And uh, so I did, and I showed our data. And they had a bloke, I don't know whether you've ever watched the Hollow Men program on the ABC. There was a couple of blokes who used to give a PowerPoint presentation from the Prime Minister's Department. There was a dead ring effect for those guys in this from deed. And uh, he got up and uh, he gave this talk, pretty flowery, about uh, the fact that agriculture was a sunset industry. And there were too many graduates. And I, uh, I frowned a bit and then I sort of said, can you tell me what your evidence is for that? He said, well, we don't have a lot of money, but we've been doing this for a while, so we have experience in doing it. And he said, we look at the advertisements in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald on a Monday and Wednesday, and then we multiply by a factor based on our experience. And that's how they get the workforce numbers. And I said, wow. <laughs> I was thinking, am I in a dream here? <laughs> Is this for real? <laughs> if I was looking for a job, I wouldn't be looking in the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age on Mondays and Wednesdays. As I was driving along the Hume Highway from Canberra to Wagga, holding the steering wheel very tightly, I thought there has to be a better way. And I, uh, I made a phone call to my colleagues at uh, Rimfire Resources who are a leading agricultural employment company. And I said, how do, you, how do you guys work out what the workforce needs are? And he said, oh, we collect all the advertisements in all the papers and on the internet from around Australia on a regular basis. And I said, what do you do with the data? And they said, well, we can't do anything other than inform ourselves because it would be seen as vested interest if we tried to promote all of that. And I, I got down on my knees and uh, said, would you share it with the august body of the Australian Council of Deans of Agriculture? Almost by the time I got home, they'd sent across about 50,000 ads or something, not the ads themselves, but the numbers, over you know, a period of years. And so I played with those numbers to show that there were something like six and a half to 7,000 ads a year. And when I put that against what we were graduating in professional agriculturalists, it was about say 400 agriculture graduates, but if we added horticulture and animal production and all that, we got up to about 700 or so. So 700 for 6,000 jobs didn't seem to me to be a, uh, a sunset industry where there was too many graduates. Put all that together. No. Put out a media release, produced a paper, and the media picked up on that and gave us great coverage and the first call I got was from DEET in Canberra asking me for a copy of the paper. And that would have been, in my opinion, the first time they had any actual data to support that position. And from there, we've evolved, uh, but we're still in a uh, negative position. I had a look at the data from last year, only this week, and there are more jobs last year than there were in the previous years. So we're looking at something approaching uh, I know five or 6,000 jobs still being advertised. A lot of those are on farm, but we've got about 4,000 jobs off farm, 
which is the agribusiness sector, of which about a thousand or more are in the cities, we're still only producing about 850, 900 graduates a year. So we've got a uh, big opportunity there. The job market is highly buoyant. There's a whole range of jobs everywhere. There's a really good salary component associated with them. All we need to do is to get agribusiness that to stand up and be counted with the universities to say, look, guys, we've got really good job opportunities with great career paths. We need you to go and get your degree and they need to help support those people through those studies. Something that's really exciting is that there is something for almost everyone when it comes to a career in ag. As you mentioned, there are jobs in the city, there are jobs on farm, there are jobs off farm. It is such a dynamic industry to be a part of. So it is a great opportunity for students to get involved because you're not pigeonholed into one role or another. There's so much you can do. The numbers have just come back to me. It's about 9,000 jobs there were last year, which about 5,000 were on farm. And that included management plus non-management and 4,000 off-farm. You know, it just shows the, the extent of it. The problem we have, though, is that all the media exposure and uh, I have to say NFF and Research Development Corporations, they tend to focus on the on-farm stuff and nobody is promoting the off-farm stuff. And when we have a look at what kids at school think about agriculture, if you say, what's agriculture about? The word clouds that come out of that conversation clearly identify farming. And most of the kids that we might want to attract into agribusiness say, oh, well, I can't be a farmer. I've got no family involved in farming. I'm not sure I want to be a farmer. And all the negative publicity around agriculture is related to the farming bit rather than the positive promotion of what's involved in agribusiness. It's kind of exactly where the background I've come from and never expected agriculture to be career path that had so much opportunity and having the podcast and talking to different people, you do realise that you don't have to come off a farm to have some kind of value that you can add to some part of the industry along the way. I think that's what makes it so exciting. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things about last year's data, for the first time we've looked at ag technology as a, an employment opportunity and there are 160-odd jobs advertised for people in agri-tech. So if you're a bit of a nerd or if you're a bit of an engineer or an IT guru, then there are jobs out there. Sometimes we take agriculture for granted, but agriculture is about quality of life, particularly for Australians, but it's also about international markets. It's about a whole range of things. And if you're interested in helping those that need help around the world, then there's a significant humanitarian aspect to agriculture. We know that there's about 800 million people starving in the world, and a lot of those relate to uh, nutritional deficiencies as well as just lack of food. As a well-developed nation with surplus food supply of the highest quality in the world, of the greatest choice in the world, we have a responsibility to help those nations. And so there's opportunity for people who want to work in that area to get involved. And so 
in my view, an essential service, just like the health industry is and the education industry. Food is uh, what sustains us. And of course, we're the biggest environmental managers in Australia. And so there's, there's something for everyone. Absolutely. With COVID, has the university noticed a downturn in students applying and coming through for undergraduate courses? There was a continual decline until 2012. That was the depth of the trough. And then since 2012, there was 10 to 15% increase up to about 2016. And then it's leveled off until last year. It was quite variable across Australia. We actually had one of our largest intakes yet. Wow. We're really interested to see the number of bums on seats for 2022 because COVID has impacted quite a bit and there's been a change in how students are applying to get into university. And so there's more direct applications, early offers, that sort of stuff that uh, COVID has encouraged and less or fewer applications through the traditional UAC system, the University's Admission Centre. And so we actually don't know that our numbers are higher than last year in raw terms. They're also accepting early offers from other universities. And so until all that settles out, we won't know exactly how the demand is. But we're pretty happy that the demand seems to be strong just how strong we'll just have to wait and see. Considering, Jim, you only plan to stay in that first job at Wagga Ag College for a couple of years, you've had a fascinating career and seen some really huge changes. So it's great to have you on to hear about them. Oh, well, I hope it was of interest. I've really enjoyed my career. I sometimes think my father did me a great service by selling the farm and, and forcing me to go elsewhere because... I've been really lucky. A lot of my career has been serendipity. I can't say I've planned much of it. It's just sort of happened and opportunities have come along, which I've taken. And uh, I can look back on how we've evolved as a sector in the last decade or two. There's been a really serious professionalisation of our sector. And I want to get agriculture back onto the top rung. It slipped a few runs, 70s, 80s, 90s, and didn't deserve to end up there. But I think we've now got a lot of esteem back. We've got a lot of really good players involved. And I'd like to think that people are recognising that agriculture is a really important part of how well we live. I couldn't agree more with you. But before I let you go, and question left of field, but one that we ask all of our guests that come on beyond the farm gate when you're out maybe it's when you're out teaching or maybe when it's when you're out doing one of your experiments I know you had a few of those on the farm what boots do you wear (laughs) all right well I'm not one for particular brands I tend not to be the stereotype of wearing you know riding boots all the time Mm -hmm. out in the farm doing stuff I would but then I'd take them off and put comfy shoes on in the office my boots have worn out, so I don't have any field work these days. And so I'm into creature comforts now. <laughs> You're not the first guest we've had that said that comfort is where they go straight to for their shoes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Annie, for the opportunity and uh, very appreciative of your time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. 
Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert, and I'll chat to you next time. Bye.